Our speaker this evening is internationally best-selling author Lawrence Hill. Mr. Hill was born in Newmarket, Ontario, and received a bachelor's degree in economics from Laval University in Quebec City, and a master's degree in writing from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's authored 10 books of fiction and nonfiction, and his third novel, The Book of Negroes, which was published in some countries under the title Someone Knows My Name, won several awards, including the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, CBC Radio's Canada Reads, and Radio Canada's Le Combat des Livres Award, and the Commonwealth Prize for Best Book. The Book of Negroes television miniseries, which Mr. Hill co-wrote with director Clement Virgo, was filmed in South Africa and Canada and aired on CBC in Canada and on BET in the United States in early 2015. Mr. Hill was selected in 2013 as CBC Massey Lecturer. He formerly worked as a reporter with The Globe and Mail and was the parliamentary correspondent for the Winnipeg Free Press. He currently lives in Ontario and Newfoundland with his family. Tonight, Mr. Hill will speak about his latest novel, The Illegal, which tells the story of a refugee who is compelled to leave his homeland. Please join me in welcoming Lawrence Hill to the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, thank you so much, Hannah, for that introduction. I appreciate the opportunity to come to the Boston Athenaeum. I have uh, never been here before, although I've spoken and read a few times in, in Boston. And uh, what a gorgeous building and what a great place to speak. And it reminds me of the first time that I went to a library, nowhere near this gorgeous, in a suburb of Toronto when I was growing up in the early 1960s. And I had this idea that in entering a library with thousands and thousands of volumes, it, it was my obligation to read every book in the library. And that worried me a great deal at first, it was, especially when I walked by a whole shelf of Encyclopedia Britannica and I asked my father, do I have to read that whole thing like right away? So it's good to be here, but not to know that I don't have to read every book in the Athenaeum tonight. Um, my parents uh, were Americans, so I grew up with a foot in both countries black father, white mother. They married interracially in the South in 1953 and moved to Canada the day after they married to raise a family in uh, Toronto, where I was raised. And um, I can assure you that no self-respecting immigrant to Canada wants to see their son or daughter become a novelist. They're looking for doctors, lawyers, architects, engineers, anything that they hope will insulate their children from the economic and social vicissitudes that they'd face in the country, in this case, the United States, that they fled. And uh, so it didn't go over too well when my brother, sister, and I all announced that we were not going to become professionals but move into the arts instead. And my mother, an 87-year-old, still to this day civil rights activist, um, has a has a allegorical warning on our refrigerator door uh, that posted a quote from the American novelist Philip Roth. And this quote, which my mother keeps on the door now for many years, says, when a writer is born into a family, that family is finished. <laughs> you know, 
she has a point. But uh, nonetheless, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to talk about uh, the illegal. And um, it's a novel I worked on over the last five years while writing the screenplay for the uh, television miniseries adaptation of the earlier novel of mine, The Book of Negroes, and while writing a, a non-fiction book about blood and how it's a marker of a racial and religious and gender identity. Um, I also worked on this book over the last five years. And I'd like to tell you a bit about its genesis, but first, in a nutshell, The Illegal is a contemporary novel, actually set three years in the future, 2018, two years now, um, about, a, an, undoc uh, about a, an elite marathoner who uh, lives in one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, a country uh, made up of black folks in the South Indian Ocean, a country I made up called Zantoraland. It's a mountainous speck of an island about the size and economic wealth of Haiti. And it has two things that make it internationally famous. It happens to make the best Madeleines in the world because Zantoraland was once colonized by the French and they exceeded their masters at making Madeleines. So if you want a great Madeleine, go to Zantoraland. Uh, and uh, it, it also happens to produce the, uh, perhaps no place better to talk about this in Boston. It happens to produce the world's fastest marathoners. So it's a it's a it's a mountainous island. Uh, people grew up in poverty. Uh, children who hope to attain any level of fame or celebrity, adulation or wealth, hope to become great runners. And um, they grew up running at altitude. Running is in the blood and the culture of the country. And uh, in any given year, marathoners from Zantoraland might sweep in this fictional world I've created the top five places in the Boston Marathon and win gold, silver, and bronze in the Olympic Marathon in an Olympic year. They're that dominant. Keita Ali is my 24-year-old protagonist. He dreams of becoming a great marathoner, hard to do in a country that produces the world's fastest runners by far. He's about fifth ranked, so he's not quite there to make the Olympic team, but he's shooting for it. When the novel begins, his country erupts in genocidal violence, and he has to flee. And he has to go into hiding as a stateless man, as an undocumented refugee in a country that doesn't want him. In the nearest country that's an industrial powerhouse, one of the richest countries in the world, it's a large island about half the size of Australia, also in the Indian Ocean, in between Madagascar and Australia. It's called Freedom State. It's a country uh, primarily made up of European stock. Most of the inhabitants are white, uh, but it has a massive swollen township of, of uh, undocumented refugees living in a township to the south of the capital city, which is called Clarkson. This township is known as Africtown, and uh, about 100,000 people live in Africtown, and um, Freedom State has elected a government bent out of shape with xenophobic hatred and, and determined in having campaigned on a plank to catch and deport every refugee you can find in the country. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a country that's just elected a government that is bent with this drive to catch and deport refugees. And this is a country into which Qaeda comes to hide. And it's a meditation on statelessness, not just on what it means to be a refugee, but what it means to be a refugee in a country where you have the right to have a driver's license or a library card or a bank account or to work. How do you live when you live this way? 
Uh, and a couple things spurred me to meditate on the plight of refugees. A couple personal things in my life, and I'll, I'll walk you through one or two just to show you how long I've been dreaming and thinking about this idea. For me, a novel tends to gestate for decades before I finally turn to it. So uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I took my first summer job. It was 1973, and it was at Toronto's International Airport. And um, my job was to work for the Ontario government and to welcome immigrants landing legally at Toronto Airport and about to get settled in Canada with their papers intact. So I had to help them find their luggage uh, off the carousels, make sure they got up the escalators without cracking their heads open as many immigrants had never seen an escalator before, help them find accommodation. Many immigrants arrived in Canada at the time without knowing where they'd stay, so I had a list of about 20 cheap motels that I could set people up in for a week or two until they figured out where to live. I told them how to apply for government health insurance so they could at least be covered for health insurance as many people arrive as immigrants, you know, in, in great need of, of medical assistance. Um, and I also showed them how to go about applying for work and where there were places where jobs were posted. So that was my job as a 16-year-old, and my only requirements were to be able to speak a few languages and, uh, you know, French and Spanish and just be gracious and, and help people. And, but that summer was a striking summer to work at the airport because um, it was one year after 1972. And as you can well remember, uh, 1972 was a huge year in terms of geopolitics and global migration. 1972 was a year that one of the most evil dictators in the history of the 20th century expelled Ugandan Asians, simply because they were Asian in Uganda, and simply because they were in the business class of Uganda. And thousands and thousands of Ugandan Asians were kicked out by Idi Amin under threat of death. And um, as it happens, many of them came to Canada. Canada has a spotty history in terms of welcoming refugees. Sometimes we've stood up and shown great generosity. Other times we've been evil. We, we refused a boat full of refugees, of Jewish refugees trying to flee the Holocaust during the Second World War. And sadly, uh, they were sent back to, uh, to Germany and, and killed. Um, we have not always been generous, but occasionally we have been. Uh, and we welcomed thousands of Ugandan refugees into Canada, and they integrated very well. And uh, Ugandan refugees were still arriving at Toronto Airport in 73, the year after they were booted out. They didn't all come to Canada directly. Some of them arrived by circuitous routes. And so every day as I was working with landed immigrants, I would watch refugees sitting for hours and hours and hours in the secure zone of the airport waiting to be processed, often waiting with nothing more than a bag in their possession. And uh, eventually they'd be let in. And it was quite something for a kid from the suburbs in Toronto to be exposed to this migration. And it got me thinking about the movements of people around the world. And then about 10 years later, I started working uh, several times as a volunteer in various West African countries. I suppose, you know, growing up in a family of mixed race in an otherwise white suburb of Toronto, I wanted to reach out and affirm my own black identity. And I did so. Well, occasionally by moving to live in the States, uh, but also to uh, work and live as a volunteer in, in Cameroon and Mali and Niger in uh, West Africa. And my sister did the same thing, but instead of going to Africa, she went to uh, West Berlin. 
and, and began to integrate into the Afro-German community in West Berlin. And I went to visit her many times as we were quite close. This is in the 80s for about a decade up to about a year before the, the wall came down. And Karen started to, she fell in love with a Sudanese man who was a refugee in West Berlin. And the politics of refugee migration in Europe, I, I had trouble figuring out how this worked. Because if you were from the Soviet bloc, and you tried to go through the Berlin Wall, well, you know well what would happen to you. Many, many people were shot to death trying to pass over, get around, or get through the Berlin Wall. But if you happen to be a refugee from East Africa, and you showed up in East Germany, they just let you go on through. And like, don't stay here, just keep on moving, was basically the attitude. And so if, if you can believe it, and it happens to be true, East African refugees from Sudan were actually let to pass through the Berlin Wall. But once they passed through the wall, they landed in West Germany, West Berlin, with no real legal status. They passed through and then they had nothing. So you can imagine in the society as regimented as Germany how hard it is for an undocumented refugee to find a place to live or to work, of course, which is illegal, or to even get a library card. And Karen fell in love with one of these Sudanese refugees. He'd been a political cartoonist for a newspaper on the wrong side of a military coup in Sudan. And his only means of putting together a few Deutschmark to survive for food and shelter was to offer to draw people's caricatures on the streets of Berlin, using the one skill he had as a political cartoonist to stay alive under the radar screen in the streets of Berlin. And ever since visiting my sister a few times, in uh, Berlin, meeting Seth, who became the father of my sister's child, who's now my 26-year-old niece, Malaika. Ever since meeting him, I've sort of meditated on the plight, not just of refugees, but of the stateless. And of course, I don't have to tell you that in the United States and Canada, there are millions of people who are without proper documentation, who are living under the radar screen. And your children or grandchildren are probably going to school with, with children of some of these uh, undocumented refugees. So a huge issue in both of our countries, and one that I came to meditate on in this novel. So I think what I'll do is, I'll uh, read you a few short excerpts from the book, chat a bit about them, and then um, open it up to questions. So two fictional countries, Zantorland and Freedom State, and uh, set in 2018, just, just a, a little bit ahead of us, and Keita is a marathoner, and now that he's in Freedom State, illegally, his only means of making a living, of surviving, of looking for food and shelter and having to fish his sister out of a world of difficulties, is to enter the odd road race, 5K, 10K, half marathon or marathon, hoping to win. And if you can win sort of a low-grade marathon or 10K race, that's one or two, three, four, five thousand dollars in his pocket. That's his food money for a month or two. So he's no longer running for Olympic glory. He's running to stay alive. And he's in Freedom State when the book opens in 2018. And the book opens in the middle of a marathon. Go home. The words came from the runner on Keita's left, white and surely from Freedom State, limp, Brown hair flopping as he ran, arms too high, choppy gait. Running was the smoothest dance in the world. Kata had been trained to picture his own legs like wheels. He learned to strike with his feet soundlessly, transfer weight through the balls of his heel, feet 
roll off the toes and spend more time flying than earthbound. Anybody could run, but few with grace. This competitor ran as if his tires weren't inflated. The runner on his left said it again. Go home. A rude man. He deserved to suffer. Kata bumped up the pace. Sooner or later, the obnoxious fellow would start to hurt. The name of the game was to inflict more pain than he felt. So Kata, a stranger in a strange land whose only transgression was to exist in a country where his presence was illegal, would use speed to break this man. Kata had studied a map of the Buttersby Marathon. It was an out-and-back route, 21.1 kilometers east along the Chelting Escarpment, a 180-degree turn, and then 21 kilometers right back to the finish line. A few kilometers after the halfway turn, they would climb up the marathon's one and only hill. It would curve, steepen, and keep rising for two kilometers, challenging for sure. But what were two kilometers uphill at sea level in Freedom State compared to the red hills of Zantarland at altitude? They ran along a winding road bordered by the tallest pine trees Kata had ever seen. Here along the marathon route, massive branchless trunks reached many stories into the air and exploded into a riot of needles and cones. Kata inhaled the smell of pine, odd to find such welcoming trees in this hostile land. Driving ahead of them were three police motorcycles. One of them carried a race official who sat facing backward to keep his eyes on the leading marathoners. Kata tried to put the police officers out of his mind. They would never suspect them, not in a race, not under their noses. The motorcade rounded a corner. In the instant it slipped out of sight, the fellow to Kata's left threw a low punch. Kata saw the blow coming and stepped to the right, but it glanced off his umbilical hernia. The hernia, now the size of a golf ball, throbbed. Could the other runner tell it was there under Kata's shirt? The runners rounded the corner, and the motorcycles came into sight again. It wouldn't be enough to beat his aggressor. Kata wanted to make him suffer. But the aggressive runner remained close. Gonna mess you up, the man said. Kata drifted to the far side of the road. The runner stayed with him. Kata swerved back. The name caller stuck to him. A string of orange cones marked the halfway point. The runners rounded the turn and began to run back in the direction from which they'd come. Kata glanced at a large digital clock which showed one hour, five minutes, eleven seconds. Kata's adversary tucked in behind him and a third runner trailed by a step. Another white guy from Freedom State. Two hundred meters back in the direction of the finish line, they blew past the fourth and fifth place runners. Six hundred meters further along, they encountered another trickle of outbound runners. The jerk remained one stride back. At the base of the hill, they passed the 24-kilometer mark. Kata picked up the pace once more, drilling down to just under three minutes per kilometer. They were passing a river of runners, and some held out their hands to congratulate him. Kata high-fived one or two just to pretend that he was feeling no pain. As the grade of the slope increased, Kata employed the trick that he'd been taught while training in the red hills of Zantorland. Want to shatter your opponent's confidence? Just when he starts to hurt, you sing. 
So that opens the novel, and I, I'm going to skip ahead to a, a, a second little section that I'll read, and then a final one will follow. Um, I do move quickly into this life that Kata has underground in Freedom State, but I feel the reader needs to understand why he's fled, needs to understand that his life was in jeopardy, that, that his family's being obliterated through genocide, and if the reader follows that, then we'll care more about his fate hiding in Freedom State. So in this section, we're back in his home country. It's a year before he's fled, so it's 2017. He's with his father, who's a world-famous freelance journalist whose nickname is Yo-Yo. And he's, he's, they live very humbly, and they're in their house one day when the president pays a visit. One day... Kata was frying eggs and heating beans for dinner while his father sat in his armchair and read the New York Times when someone pounded on their front door. Yo-Yo stashed his newspaper under his chair while Kata answered the door. Three government officials in suits and ties stood at the porch. The one closest to Kata said, Stand at attention for His Excellency, President for Life of the Republic of Zantorland. A man in robes stepped up from behind them. The white cloth of the robe was of the highest quality cotton bordered with intricate blue stitching. Lots of people came to the door to pay homage to Kata's father, but it took effort not to stare at the president and show all the hatred that he felt. As far as Kata was concerned, the president was responsible for his mother's death, his father's torture, and the deaths and disappearances of countless others, leaving his victims naked and dead in public places. Kata had been taught at home and in school not to hate, only to forgive. But looking at the president now, he felt no forgiveness. No woman in the house to greet me, the president said. He gave a booming laugh. One of his aides murmured that Yo-Yo was a widower. Well, the president said, every father needs a faithful son to cook for him. The president entered and approached the stove. Because of the unreliable electricity, the alley home had a small two-burner stove hooked up to two propane gas tanks. When one tank ran out, the other could be activated. Quaint and lovely, the president said, just like the ways of people up in the hills. Keita and Yo-Yo stood at a respectful distance. They knew to be silent unless asked a direct question. Eggs and beans, the president said. Would your excellency like some? Keita asked. Speaking out of turn without explicit invitation was the only way he knew to convey his contempt. I would accept eggs and beans another time, the president said, but as they're ready now, go ahead and eat. Yes, serve yourself, father and son. Please, be at ease. Cater removed two fried eggs and placed them with beans on his father's plate. His father slid into the chair at the table, his look saying, do not speak again unless asked a direct question. Kata served himself, brought two mugs of water to the table, and sat with his father. The president's three aides stood silently at the door, each with his left hand hanging down and his right pulling back a suit jacket and resting on a hip, exposing a revolver. So, Mr. Ali, renowned journalist of Zantorland, how are your eggs this evening? They're almost as excellent as you, Yo-Yo said. Keita admired his father's answer. One was required to use the term Your Excellency in each phrase uttered to Jenkins Randall. 
This way, Yo-Yo came close without quite satisfying the president's dictates. You must be proud of your son. The president stood behind Keita and rubbed the back of his head. Keita felt the big palm moving slowly, methodically. The president's square ring scratched his scalp. Yes, I am, Your Excellency, Yo-Yo said. He took in the sight of the president with his son's head in his hands and asked, To what do we owe the honor of a visit from Your Excellency? A father who's a, such a famous intellectual with a son who's ranked what now in the National Marathon rankings? Fifth, Keita said. The president removed his hand from Keita's head and placed it on his shoulder. Fifth! That's correct, Keita said. Not easy, the president said, in a country known for its runners. Yo-Yo glared at Keita, who kept his mouth shut this time. Keita didn't want to show any respect where it was not deserved, but neither did he want to do something to cause his father harm. The president began walking back and forth behind Keita and Yo-Yo, clapping his hands together each time he paused behind Keita. Don't you agree that your father will be pleased to have a long and peaceful retirement and to move, see his son move up in the national marathon rankings? Yes, Your Excellency, Keita said. He remembered what had happened in the last Olympic Games when not one of the three Zantorlander marathoners made it onto the medal podium. It had shocked the nation because on a good day, any one of them could have won the race handily. When the three ma marathoners returned to Zantorland, all were imprisoned. Two weeks later, when released, each used a red cane and walked with a permanent limp. And you, Mr. Ali, have had quite the illustrious career, the president said. The New York Times, the Atlantic, the Guardian, the Toronto Star, Le Monde. I've slowed down in recent years, Your Excellency. Slowing down is a good thing, Mr. Ali. Gives you time to enjoy life, to enjoy your children. Most thoroughly, Your Excellency, Yo-Yo said. The president, a tall man with the girth of a boulder, stooped to speak in Yo-Yo's ear. Do you follow boxing? A little, Your Excellency. Would you agree that it pains the soul to see a boxer come out of retirement and enter the ring again? I never like to see anyone hurt, Your Excellency. Precisely my thoughts. The wise boxer knows when to fight and when it's time to quit. It's all about balance and what seems right, Your Excellency. I have just a proposition for you, the President said. You're the perfect person to write my authorized biography and place it with publishers around the world. I'll give that careful thought, Your Excellency, Yo-Yo said. This project could bring pride to the people of Zantoraland. You'd be richly compensated. Due consideration, Your Excellency. The President stood still behind Keita. He let a moment pass. Consider the comforts of a bigger home, a cook, an endless supply of good food for your family. It's a well-understood fact that journalists nearly take vows of poverty. How could a widower with children resist the miracle of the fishes and the loaves? There are the fishes and the loaves to consider, Your Excellency, but there's also the eye of the needle. The President stood absolutely still. Kata could hear him swallow. Well, in my humble opinion, as servant to the people of Zantoraland, I'll not endeavor to rush you to your good senses. Enjoy your eggs, Mr. Ali. And Mr. Ali Jr., I wish you fleet feet and a minimum of cardiovascular suffering.
I'm sure that no father wishes to see his son in pain. I'll end that scene there. Um, Kata flees a year later, so the novel continues in Freedom State. And I'm going to read a final excerpt from the story. I had a, a real interesting artistic challenge mounting this novel. Usually, it sort of goes without saying that if you're going to have a protagonist, the protagonist should be interesting and dynamic and colorful and should attract the reader and radiate a, a light. But I was writing about a survivor of genocide. Keda Ali has barely escaped with his life. His family's been obliterated. He's not radiant, happy, colorful, dynamic. He's trying to stay alive and trying to stay invisible in a country where he's dead if he's found. So he's not a colorful man. He's suffering. His emotions are repressed. He's just trying to stay alive. So how to make an interesting novel and drive the reader forward with a main character who's dignified, honest, decent, but, but repressed in his emotion? I finally hit upon the idea to have a really colorful cast of secondary characters, each of whom would take turns telling the story in addition to Keita. And the, the colorful characters who constitute the rest of the novel don't get to walk onto the pages of this book unless they want something from Keita. Nobody's in this book except for the piece they want of the protagonist. They want to shoot him or kill him or extort money from him, or write an article about him for a newspaper to enhance their own journalistic career, or seduce him. Everybody in this book wants a piece of Keita, or, or else they're not in the book. And so, in using colorful characters to keep bouncing off him, I, I came upon this idea of imagining that cast of people as uh, moons revolving around the planet Keita, and they are used to sort of reflect their light on him, thus making him interesting and driving the reader forward, I hope. So that was a strategy I sort of came upon novelistically to hold the story together with a protagonist who's a quiet man. So he's in Freedom State. He's in hiding. I've already described to you how he's making his living, meager as it is. And he's in training one day when he meets this woman who becomes uh, quite attached to him. She's an 85-year-old widow. She's white. She's well-to-do. She's in a whole lot of troubles. And their troubles coalesce in this novel. And they form a, an interesting friendship. Her name is Ivernia Beach. And it, by the way, it's the first time in ten books that I've written a character vaguely resembling my own obstreperous mother. <laughs> so here we go. Avernia drew a long breath. Some twenty years ago, when she was in her sixties and still had nimble fingers, she'd taken up the classical guitar. If you played an instrument, something new, something you'd never touched before, it was said to prevent your brain from rotting. The guitar instructor introduced her to the music of Fernando Sor, and encouraged Divernia to breathe while she played. She told him that she'd come to study music, not yoga. She had to abandon the instrument after it gave her a tennis elbow. And now, as she ran once more through the events leading up to the accident, she exhaled slowly, just as a guitar teacher had taught her, and replayed in her mind the single moment of kindness and light in an otherwise all-around shitty day. Averni had been driving south on Aberdeen Road. She'd already passed Main Street and Queen Street. Now she was entering the thick of the village, the attractive section of Clarkson lined with cafes, shops, beauty salons, bookstores. Five blocks ahead were the Parliament Building on the left and the Freedom Building with offices for federal politicians on the right. Beyond them was a giant Ruddings Park. 
and beyond that the railway tracks, the formal end of the city. And after five kilometers of no man's land, the sudden mushrooming of Africtown. But Ivernia wasn't going anywhere near that far. The locks and bagel was located right here in the heart of the village, and all Ivernia had to do was find a parking spot. She was driving her late husband's 1999 Oldsmobile Intrigue. It was 19 years old and not a speck of rust. Oversized like a car fueled with steroids, but it worked like a charm. Southbound traffic kept Ivernia to 20 kilometers an hour. It was a warm spring day. She had the windows down. Above the sound of traffic, she heard a man singing. Good voice. He had a lilting foreign accent, and he was singing a country song. She glanced to her left. Nothing. To her right. There he was. A young black man was running as fast as her car. What a joy it must be, Avernia thought, to move one's body with that ease and speed. Like Ivernia, he was heading south on Aberdeen. She wondered why he was running in the road, but then noticed that pedestrians clogged the sidewalk. He was in his mid-twenties, as thin as a pencil. Strapped to his waistband was an iPod, and from it white wires ran up to the buds in his ears. Clearly, he had no idea how loud he was singing the country hit that had become as familiar as a national anthem. I've been running for you, baby, running all the time, but you're running for another heart. And the heart you want ain't mine. Ivernia had turned off the radio 20 times in the last year just to avoid hearing another note of that song. But it sounded funny and somehow touching coming from this strange runner. Traffic slowed. He ran by her door. His head was bobbing to the music and his eyes were wide open. He caught her looking at him and smiled. She smiled too and then pulled ahead of him as the lane before her opened up. It was odd that a man moving that fast could sing as he ran. She left them behind as she accelerated. Traffic moved quickly, and Ivernia caught two green lights. There, up ahead, just one block, was the locks and bagel. Parking on Aberdeen was murder. But just ahead of her, directly in front of the locks and bagel, a car pulled out. Ivernia slowed down, a space big enough for her Oldsmobile. No fire hydrant. No reason she couldn't park there. She detested parallel parking, but there was no option. She pulled up beside a Jaguar, put the O's in the reverse, and checked the rearview mirror. Lots of pedestrian traffic on the sidewalk, but there was nothing between her and the BMW parked directly behind her. She backed halfway in, turning the wheel clockwise to ease into the spot, and then counterclockwise to straighten it out. She stopped midway to make sure she was fine. The Olds was such a big car. Everything looked okay. And then it happened. She was about to press down on the accelerator ever so gently to continue reversing when a baby cried. Loudly. She meant to jam her foot on the brake, but instead mashed it down on the accelerator. The old shot back, and the next instant, Ivernia felt metal crumple and heard glass shatter. A woman began screaming. Ivernia couldn't see the woman or the baby. Had she hit them? She flipped the gear into drive, pushed on the accelerator pedal again, and charged forward, catching and demolishing the back left end of the Jaguar. 
She put her car in park, turned off the ignition, and then opened the door to more screaming. Averna, you got out of the car. A woman stood on the sidewalk next to a stroller. The baby was in her arms. Did I hit you? Avernia asked. My car! Are you hurt? Avernia said. No, but almost. I was this close, the woman said, holding her thumb and index finger apart. When you smashed into my car, and here I was with a baby. The singing runner showed up. Hello, ma'am, he said to the young mother. May I help? She looked grateful. The woman had dropped a bag of groceries. He retrieved cans and bags, bending and straightening until he stored them all in the stroller. The runner then saw Ivernia, looked straight at her. Ma'am, are you all right? Yes, quite, she said, but she wasn't all right at all. He could see it in her eyes. Why don't you sit down, he said. There was a bench at the edge of the sidewalk in front of the locks and bagel. He led her to it his fingertips resting on her shoulder. She tried to remember the last time that anyone had touched any part of her body in a kind, solicitous way. Everything's going to be okay, he said. Nobody's hurt, right? She nodded. He straightened, went to her car door, pulled out her purse and car keys and returned with them. Sit here, he said. You'll need your things. Are you okay, ma'am? Breathe a little. Ivernia stared at him with glassy eyes. The earbuds were strung over his shoulder. From them, she detected the tinny sound of country music. I heard you singing back there, she said. He smiled. I sing when I train, he said. She heard a siren. She looked up and saw the police vehicle two blocks away. He said, God bless, must run, take care, don't worry, everything will be okay. Once more, he touched her shoulder. Ivernia felt a calm spread through her body. Nobody was hurt. What was the worst that could happen? Wait, she said. What's your name? He hesitated, smiled once more and said, Roger Bannister. Goodbye and good luck. He set off running again southbound on Aberdeen Road in the direction of Ruddings Park in Africtown. Roger Bannister, she mumbled to herself. She knew that name. The British runner. The first one to break the four-minute mile. He did it on May 6, 1954. Sixty-four years ago. She remembered. She was 21 years old. And it was a day that she and Ernie married. She wished that she'd had time to tell that to the runner. A hand was on her shoulder. A firm hand. Ma'am, ma'am, were you involved in that accident? Are you the owner of that Oldsmobile? She looked into the eyes of a square-jawed police officer whose expression seemed to say, You've gone and ruined my perfectly good day. Perhaps Avernia should have waited for a lawyer or fought the charge or sought the plea bargain. She knew all about those things. But she was an old woman and she had no mind for subtleties. So she just looked at him and said, It all comes down to one thing, officer. I screwed up. So can we get on with it? It was a day later now, and her license was suspended. Her car impounded, and she was feeling suffocated in the meeting room of the office for independent living. She was bursting with impatience. She wanted out. Whatever they were going to do to her, she wanted it over. So here she was telling her three inquisitors one more time that she realized the gravity of the situation 
but did not want a lawyer. Could we just get this done? She asked, keeping her hands under the table so her three inquisitors could not see them shaking. When you reach the age of 85, hands were simply not to be trusted. Avernia tried to calm herself by thinking of the gentle face of the runner. The one who stopped to help everybody, herself included. The runner was the only person who said a kind word to her that entire day. Avernia hoped the runner was not a refugee, or if he was, that he would not be caught and deported. She focused on her breathing and on good thoughts. Fernando Sor, the runner singing country music, marrying her husband on the same day that Roger Bannister ran the Miracle Mile in three minutes and 59 seconds. Ernie had been good to her from their first day together to their last. Breathe, Avernia, breathe. Keep breathing and just answer their stupid questions. Thank you.